Welcome back to another episode of Imposter. I'm here with Monica to bring you an interview from uh, one of our colleagues, Caroline Pei, who is our chief creative officer at Headspace. Her philosophy is to be an anti-imposter. So we're excited to hear from her what that means and how we can all be anti-imposters in our lives. Thanks for having me. I think we're both just like so excited, Caroline, to hear you talk about what an anti-imposter is and hopefully how we can all become one by the end of this hour we have together. But just to give a little context, can you, and I know Taylor and I have already heard this, but there's a lot of lovely people listening who haven't heard about your background. If you could give the quick need to know bullet points about who you are and where you came from and how you became chief creative officer at Headspace. A little bit of background on me. I am a 45-year-old single mom of a boy called Buddy. I grew up in Croydon, which is a suburb of southeast London. I was the joker at school. I never paid attention or worked hard. I had a lovely social life and had a lovely time. I was really good in subjects I loved and really bad in subjects I didn't. So I was the first and only person at my school to be allowed to take all of the creative options because they could see that if they let me do the creative subjects, then I would thrive. And if they forced me to do the academic subjects, then I would fail. So I'm very grateful for like a a suburban Croydon state school in 19... 89, allowing me to be, to play to my strengths even then at like age 14. I went through school, high school, I went to art college and I had a dream to work in fashion. But in the UK, you have to have five options for university and I only had four in fashion. So I filled one out for advertising and I ended up studying creative advertising um, at university. I then went on to a phenomenal college that's known as Watford um, in the UK, which basically takes your brain out and puts a new one in and teaches you how to think. And three quarters of the way through that course, I got the opportunity to go and work at at an agency in Amsterdam called Kesselskramer, which at the time was without a doubt one of the hottest agencies around. So within 48 hours, I'd you know, me and my partner, my creative partner had packed our bags and got off to Amsterdam. And really, that was the, I would say, the first step in a career that was very charmed and very lucky. And I worked incredibly hard. I earned the luck. And really, I just went from working at Kessels Kramer to I got my first proper job in London at an agency called Mother spent seven fantastic years at Mother, you know, selling all the work I wrote and winning awards for all the work I made and traveling the world with my then creative partner, Kim Gehrig, and just living the life, you know, from um, 23 to 30. I traveled the world making, making ads that I'd written and winning pitches. And, you know, as I say, like, I do feel that I was incredibly charmed and very, very lucky. But my God, we worked hard, you know, so that was kind of the first decade I guess and then uh, I left there and went to run Levi's at an agency called BBH after a few years I freelanced for a bit I then had my son who's now 11 his name is Buddy I then went back to mother and and had a few years there running um, the Boots account Boots Walgreens account I then went back to BBH and ran the Tesco account. And then I ended up at an advertising agency called Gray, which I was co-CCO with my one of my best 
friends, one of the best humans that I know, uh, a lady called Vicky Maguire. And we had a really good run at being co-CCOs. I was so incredibly happy. I was in my element. And then I got the call from Headspace. I'd known Rich deeply for about 15 years at that stage. We had crossed over at BBH, but we hadn't ever really worked on a project together until we'd both left BBH. And then we teamed up and kind of had an accidental startup for a year or two where we would just service clients from my house. Rich called me and he said, you know, because he'd been a very, very good friend of mine throughout the birth of my son and then throughout my divorce. He'd just been a great support for me. So he knew what I'd been through and he was like, right, Headspace needs a creative leader now and you need a new chapter now. So come to California, be the CCO of Headspace. And I was a bit like, oh, Rich, we've talked about this before. I I can't. I can't come to California. You know, I've got a good rhythm. I'm having such a lovely time at Grey and me and Buddy have got our life in London. And Rich was like, think about what needs to be true for it to happen. So um, I basically wrote I wrote where I'd been, where I was and where I thought I was going. And then I saved as. And then I wrote where I've been, where I am, and where I could go if I follow this opportunity. And and then really just by writing that down, the decision was made. So again, without really thinking it through, (laughs) I packed up mine and Buddy's life and moved over to LA in the summer of 2018 and started at Headspace in the summer of 2018. And here we are. And here we are. Thank, wow. thank God. Thank God. You made that, made that <laughs> list. What were, what were some of like, I know you said you kind of didn't really think about it, but what were some of the just big levers pulling you toward LA and Headspace? I don't think things through. I don't either. I don't, I don't either. Ever. Oh my God. Finally, I found some people that understand. <laughs> if I'd have thought it through, not the job, but the move, I wouldn't have done it because doing it alone with a child, I had absolutely no idea what it meant to move to California. I had no idea what the health and wellness tech industry was like. I'd never met a software engineer in my life. I didn't know anything about, I literally didn't know anything about anything apart from a new headspace. I'd been on the headspace journey from the day Richard Andy met. So I was very, very close with the brand and I had always been involved from a distance, whether I was giving an opinion or connecting talent. So I had a connection to Headspace and obviously a personal connection to Rich. And I loved the way that he pitched me my life. Like I loved the way that he was like, you need a new chapter in the sunshine. Believe me, it's it's glorious. And it it really is. Certainly was before fucking COVID. Um, (laughs) so, So I think Rich... Headspace, the opportunity. I'd been toying with moving from agency side to brand side for a good few years. I had been, I'd interviewed for brand side jobs and and they just hadn't happened at the time that I wanted. So Gray came along and it was just a wonderful kind of last hurrah in advertising for me. So I think the chance to go brand side and to be wholly responsible for the success of one brand rather than you know when you're running agencies you've always got like your big account and a couple of other accounts and maybe a charity account you know or like when you're heading up a department you're responsible for dozens of accounts really so the chance to be like single-minded on one brand was also great I think in hindsight the idea of successfully moving just me and my son to California and setting up a life here and taking over headspace like 
that's just a glorious opportunity, right? So you'd be crazy to say no just because of a few logistics. But I certainly never doubted that I could do it. I, I never doubted I could do the CCO bit. The moving thing was just atrocious and thankfully my mum helped. <laughs> well, that that kind of goes into, I think, why we really wanted to have you on the podcast because you've talked about how you're like an anti-imposter and what you just said was you you know, you're talking about this huge move into a, into a space that you're not really familiar with. And you just said you never doubted that you could do the CCO job. So talk to us about what being an anti-imposter means and just how, yeah, how that came to be, how that came to be part of your personality. So a couple of things really. So first of all, I remember, I only heard the term imposter syndrome probably about four years ago. So at that stage, I was running grey with Vicky and I'll look around and I'll be like, well, I'm definitely not an imposter here. I know exactly what I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? So there was that bit in the moment when I heard it. But also then I would look back at my career and I would think I could never remember a moment where I felt that I hadn't earned the right at the table, like whether it was in a creative review as a junior creative or, you know, pitching to big big, big, big clients when I was a middleweight creative or standing up in front of department when I was a creative director. Like I never, ever thought to myself, what am I doing here? Or I can't do this. But I will say, because I've just remembered the thing. So I remember a moment when I was at art college and I'd applied to go to Watford and they send you like a copy test. And this is like 1997. So it's like literally you got a piece of A4 paper printed out in the post. And I got the piece of paper and I opened it and I read the copy test and I burst into tears and I put it in the bin because I was like, oh, I know only the answers to those questions. They're crazy. No, no, no. Put it in the bin straight away. And my parents came in and they got it out the bin and they were like, we know that you can do it. And I don't know how they convinced me to do it, but I did it and I I did it and I got in. Um, But that was definitely, that could be the crossroads in my life to imposter or not imposter. And then I think as as I got more familiar with the term imposter syndrome and I and I would kind of hear people talking about it, be like, hey, yeah, and feel a bit weird because they were all like, oh, I'm so coy and I'm just a girl and people are going to find me out. And, <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I just, I definitely don't feel like that. Like once I put myself through the ringer of it, I'm like, you know what? These people are paying me really well to sit here. So how dare I? pretend I don't know what I'm doing. So I think that I owe it to the people who pay my wages and I owe it to my colleagues and I owe it to the members of Headspace to step up and over deliver on the job I'm paid to do. I think it's like, I can see it might be cute, but I don't, I don't feel that it's fair. It's definitely not cute. I think it's more of an internal monologue. Like, and the, the, the thing that's painful is that you're, you feel like you're pretending. Yeah. I'm your new software engineer. Like, here I go. Look at all this stuff I built and let me do, let me do demos and show every, show everyone. I know what I'm doing, but inside there are those moments where you're like, Oh wait, do I know what I'm doing? But you keep it. It's so exhausting because you keep it to yourself. Yeah. Unless you decide to start a podcast about it. (laughs) But also, you know, even there, even there, I'd be like, like, imagine if I said, Oh, you don't want me on, on your podcast. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think you would be disappointed in me. People have said that, that we've asked. And I'm like, no, we we asked you for a reason. We want you on. Did did you ever feel like when you were younger, 
Or do you think you've just always been like this? It, it sounds like maybe your parents gave you a lot of... Yeah, it was my mom. Blame my, just completely blame my mom because she, you know, she she did it too. No, me. we're she celebrating said, you, her for it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Celebrate, celebrate your pay. Um, she said to me, if you don't believe in yourself, why the hell should anybody else? Mm. And I'm like, mm, that's a really good... That's a really good point because then if I carry myself with confidence and I sound like I know what I'm talking about and I believe in what I say, then there's more chance that other people will. And and I and I've and that's just kind of that would just stapled to my forehead forever. And uh and fine if it comes across as arrogant, I'm really proud of myself and you know, really happy to have had the career I've had and so privileged to have this um role now. And how dare I? put it into question. Yeah. I I think I love that you keep returning to that sort of like challenging yourself. How dare I think that I can't do this? And, And I think part of that is you must also then have very easy access to all of your past accomplishments and be able to recall those with relative ease as well. So, so on top of saying, how dare I, uh, challenging yourself, do you have other techniques that you use to challenge any sort of like negative self-talk that might surface? I kind of want to answer this really carefully because I don't want to sound like I've got it all figured out because I definitely haven't. But I think my way of dealing with stuff is definitely more like, I don't know how I'm going to do it all. Like I'm very dramatic. Like one little thing goes wrong and I'm like, oh, I fall on the floor and cry. But it's, it's not about whether I'm capable it's like, I know I'll get through it all. It's just how I'll get through it all. So I think that's where certainly right now, that's what I'm feeling is this. It's like, sometimes there's so much going on and you know that you'll get over the mountain. You just don't know how you'll get over the mountain. And as long as you know, you'll get over the mountain, it's going to be okay. And sometimes you've got to try really hard. And sometimes you've got to give up and lie on the sofa. And I kind of do 50, 50 at the moment, you know, we're in such a weird time and everything's so full on and intense, but I don't have self-doubt. I have many things. I have anxiety, depression, panic attacks, all sorts of overwhelm. But I don't doubt myself because as you say, Monica, I can look back and go, okay, well, you know, you cracked into an industry where there were no young girl creatives. You became a female CCO where at the time there was only 2% in the UK of CCOs with female you moved yourself and your son, you set up a life alone in California. Like even now I'm driving along in the sunshine I'm, and I never drove in London. I'm like, I'm driving a car in California. You know, I still like, it's that ingrained self-belief and then continuing to push myself and prove to myself that I can do more and more, I guess. Is there, I'm wondering, I could be totally wrong, but is there a Is there a difference in how sexism manifests itself in the UK versus in the US? You may not know, but it it sounds like you just said you went, you were one of the only female creatives in college, like as a young woman, and you didn't have that imposter feeling. So I don't know if that's like a cultural thing or, or what? When I joined Mother, I was the only female creative. One of the founders was female, but she'd left by the time I joined. And I only ever saw it as like, cool, I'm the only girl. That's fun. And then when me and Kim were a creative team, we actually got really annoyed by people calling us out as girls. Like, oh, they're the girl team. Or, oh, that's quite funny for girls. Um, So we definitely rejected any nod to our gender. But then as we got 
older, we kind of had a responsibility to role model and show that you could be a successful all-girl team. Or I then became a creative director. Kim became one of the best advertising directors in the world. So we had an uh, an opportunity, the privilege and the responsibility to to really talk about being women in 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 a man's world. But again, I was very fortunate because I don't feel like I was ever discriminated against for being female. I think I felt celebrated for being female. I think we, Monica, I know I feel this, even though we do have imposter syndrome and we we have other challenges, I do feel special to be one of the only women, you know, engineers. It's cool to just be a handful, like we're in a secret club. So there, there are definitely positives to it. What do you, I've seen you in our, our channels um, where we support each other, offering advice to other women, especially when it comes up, like feedback or self-review time comes around. What are, what's some advice that you give your female counterparts? My favorite is to call out and embarrass people when they show signs of unconscious bias. For example, some men, when they look after their own children, say they're babysitting. It's actually parenting. For example, when people, let's say we're talking about doctors, they automatically say he. So I'll say, or she or they. Like I'll always call out these uh, moments where there's an opportunity to be more open-minded and less stereotypical. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to make sure that you make space for yourself at the table. Like it's really easy to walk into a room and, oh, there's not quite enough room. So, oh, I'll just sit at the back. And often people pleasers that we are, we might sit at the back and take notes, whereas actually we should be leading that meeting. You know, sometimes I tell so two, three people, three of my directs this last month, I've told them the spiel that, that they have achieved in the last year. So it's like I'm pitching them to someone else, but I'm just telling it to them. Because as they're like boss and kind of proud mama, I can, I'm just like, I cannot believe what you've achieved in this last year. Do you even understand how far you've come? And, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I mean, I've done a couple of projects and that was okay. But And trying to teach women to be like, I am fucking incredible. I have done these 50 things in the last year is a good, is a good, it's a good practice, right? It's a good exercise for yourself. Or you do it to Monica and you do it to Taylor and understand quite how brilliant you are and start to feel comfortable expressing how, how brilliant and talented you are. Do you have direct reports who are men too? Because I'm wondering if you notice like a very different response when, you're pitching the women on themselves versus pitching the men on themselves. I never have to pitch the men on themselves. That's what I thought. They're very aware of, uh, well, certain ones maybe, but more often than not, I have to remind women how brilliant they are. And it's not just my directs. I mentor maybe a dozen women at Headspace. You know, I think part of my responsibility is to remind them and to pump them up and be really, really honest and not humble about how great they are. I'm wondering also if, have you ever noticed any pushback or just really like any difference in the way that men react to this anti-imposter attitude? (laughs) (laughs) They can't bear it. (laughs) Well, I think that I can just think of a couple of bosses that my confidence and my, the way that I relate to people was just very different to them. Like these old bosses in a couple of agencies that I I eventually left uh, because of, you know, they 
didn't love my enthusiasm, my people pleasing, my positivity, like literally just jumping around like a fucking cheerleader all day, having really real personal relationships with people across the agency at all levels. It was confusing for them. It's not how they grew up. It's not how they operated. They grew up in the you know, agencies in the 80s where there was a lot of hierarchy and and really the creative director would kind of sit in their castle and people would be lucky if they, you know, said hello or whatever. Um, So I think that my confidence and enthusiasm and optimism and love was really beneficial to the team, but really annoying to my bosses. Really, really annoying. I mean, how, how can that be? Like if you're helping the morale of the team, how can they find that annoying? I think it might be because that's not how they've found success. So it's counter to what they think is right. And and I'm sure everyone's way is right in its own way. But I wasn't about to dumb down my, I wasn't around to cheer, to trim my cheerleader, whatever you call them, for them, you know. Dim your light. Yeah. And I definitely felt that. I felt my, my wrist slapped. I definitely felt to get told to get back in my box and simmer down and have my wings clipped and all those things and I was like fuck you no I'm I'm having a lovely time and this is who I am and if you don't have space for me to do this in your agency then brilliant I'll go and do it somewhere else where I'm appreciated and that's why you know I ended up at Grey at the time I did because whatever I did they just they just wanted it and they and they appreciated it and therefore I appreciated them. I think that's something I admire so much about you as I feel like you just bring your full self and even in that example your full self wasn't appreciated and you're like, I'm going somewhere else. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change. Do you have advice? So do you have advice for, for women who, cause I, I, I think I bring my full self, but sometimes I I'm labeled as like emotional or a lot or cause I'm, I'm can't compare myself to you because you're like, you know, the top, like amazing, but Definitely I definitely compare like yourself I, to me. <laughs> Don't be so ridiculous. You're the top. Amazing. Like, oh my gosh. You're the top. I know that was, a, that was a live <laughs> That was a live imposter moment, (laughs) but I try, I I try to do what you do on a small scale, like rally the team, be positive, be funny, be like, like try to be real with people. I'm not just here to be a robot doing my job, but sometimes I'm like, you know, just called a lot. Or if I'm, if I'm quiet one day, it's like, like, what are you awake? Where's Taylor? Mm. Something's wrong. And I just feel like I can't I can't win. It's like, I either I'm being too much or it's like, Oh, where's Taylor? Like we depend on you for lifting the mood of the team. What's going on. So any advice for staying true to yourself, uh, without being perceived as like emotional or erratic or any of those other fun terms that women get labeled or should we just like not care? So first of all, I've decided, or I've found myself bringing my, my whole self to work because work is so much a part of my life. In terms of time I used to spend at work and with the people I worked with when I was in agency world, or in terms of Headspace is the reason I live here. Like my whole life is here because of Headspace. So they get all of me. But the main reason that I bring my whole self to work is because I want to build real relationships with people and I want to make friends. I don't want to have colleagues. Like I'm, it's either all or nothing with me. If you want to talk about work, you might actually have to talk about my son as well or my dog or my fucking nails or whatever like I don't have a professional hat that I take on and off and believe me I've been told to 
by previous bosses, but I'd refuse to. I bring my whole self to work because I actually think work is personal. The second thing is, you know, I once cried in an agency and someone took me aside and said it was the first time they'd ever seen a member of the management team be human. And actually, it was one of the most powerful pieces of leadership they'd seen at that agency, that I was overwhelmed by the workload, or I was disappointed by losing the pitch or whatever it was. And I really took that and kept that with me. So, um, And then the third point, and I love that you brought this up, Taylor, which is, if you come to work as a cheerleader, you create a monster, because sometimes you don't feel like a cheerleader. And that's a real thing for me right now in COVID, sometimes 15 Zooms a day. Sometimes I don't want to be a cheerleader. Sometimes I want to lie on the floor and cry. And I can't because I know, well, I probably can, but I tell myself I can't because I, I have this role and I bring this energy. And, and, and as much as I bring the energy to the office, I try and bring it to the Zooms. And that's really hard. I think you have to be, you try, try even harder. So I'm investigating this right now, which is when you're the clown and you don't feel like the clown, how do you still be yourself at work? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really hard right now, especially. It is. And interestingly, you know, I always said I got my energy from being around other people. And when you're not around other people, but you're giving out the energy on the Zoom, like <laughs> that's a really weird like equation. But what I will tell you is this. Some some mornings I like I do my yoga and I have my shower and I have my breakfast and I'm like, oh god, I don't I don't know how I'm gonna like pull it all together. And and then the Zoom comes on. I'm like, hey, and I and I'm there and I'm genuinely there. And often I'm I'm lifted by believing my own height. Like I can mope around on the sofa or I can come on and, and see all my incredible headspace family and feel purpose and valued. And and actually sometimes it, it makes me energized and happy. Um, so that's also like an interesting observation that I'm kind of making at the moment around my own behavior that when I don't feel like it, if I step into it, then I'll feel brilliant. And that's the beauty of this team of people. We are so lucky, the people that we have at Headspace, because they're, they're the good ones. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to decide that you're going to be in a good mood. And then be, yeah, because it's a, it's a thought. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's a decision for sure. It is a decision. And having like, you know, I don't have my partner with me here. I just have my son with me here. And so as much as I have to be like this very, uh, I, I choose to be this positive influence and positive energy for my colleagues and my friends. I also have to be like mom and, and mom in COVID has to be calm and fine and, and really all, you know, and I'm not, I'm like, Jesus, I've got to hold it together for this kid as well. And he has to hang out. He hangs out with a 45-year-old woman all day. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we like the same thing, so we're all right. But, you know, it's very interesting how if you're giving energy out on Zoom all day and then giving energy out to your child or, you know, around work, where does the, where does the energy come in for you to keep going? Truly. I want to just circle back quick to the crying at work thing. Let's see. I've, I've cried at work before. Definitely. Like when my manager left, like told us he was leaving. Um, but then I like went and hid in a booth and I think someone saw me and was like, are you okay? And it's just Mm -hmm. so like you, you're a, at that time you were crying, you cried, you were a manager. And so it was like a humanizing experience to see you. But for us, it's like, we're crying amongst peers and 
like, I feel like it, it would be a weakness or I, I remember early on at Headspace, I was feeling super overwhelmed and I was in a meeting with just a couple of people and I was just super overwhelmed. Like I was really fighting back tears. It was so, unco- I was just like, I can't even focus. Cause I like, I want to cry, but I, I can't cry in this meeting. Like I just joined a couple months ago. That's embarrassing. Like should have cried in the meeting. Yeah, I know. I guess I should have just cried. It would have been bo- a bonding experience for us. It's true. Like I, I reckon there's like stages of crying at work. So I definitely had like a first decade of crying alone in the toilets at work, which is the horriblest, loneliest and least helpful thing to do. Then I graduated into finding the friend and pulling them into the toilet or outside like we do at Headspace when you go for a walk and you have a little cry. Walk, walk, cry with the sunglasses on. Yeah, but the most powerful crying that I've done at work is in exec offsites. And I don't know what it is. I think there's, you know, I, I get, I love exec offsites because, you know, it's exciting, but it is overwhelming. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of seniority and power in the room. And also we often share quite personal things. And I always feel, I always cry when I share personal things and, Staying in the room and crying allows the team to see who you really are and it allows them to help you. And that's really what humans want to do. If they see a human, another person in distress, they just want to help them. And if you if you go off to the toilet and cry, you take away that chance to help, I guess. So never cry in the toilet alone. Always grab a friend or just openly cry to see what people do. Normalize. Normalize crying yeah. at work, people. Yeah, but- but crying on your own in the toilet never, ever, ever makes you feel better. So think about your friends. Think about who's near you. Like, I, you know, there's there's a handful of, of women, it's interesting, me always women, that I would grab depending on what room I'm in. And, and it's important that you know who are the people that you can grab. And sometimes it's the least person you'd expect actually catches you crying and takes you out for a walk and... It's always better after. Absolutely. I want to circle back quickly because I thought it was very interesting the point you made about giving so much energy out and especially now in the time of social isolation, having less ways of receiving that back. But you already mentioned that, you know, in the morning you do your yoga, you have your breakfast. So I wanted to hear more about what are those boundaries that you create for yourself and those avenues that you create to also, you know, show up for yourself and any sort of like grounding practices that you feel like do still help you show up as your full self on all of the Zoom calls, even when you might not want to that day. Yeah. I mean, it's all new. Like, so all my new techniques have been invented in the last year. But what I will say is number one is taking breaks has saved my life because I wasn't taking breaks at the beginning and I was had headaches and I felt feverish and I, my eyes were burning and I couldn't talk. It was a nightmare. I wasn't taking proper breaks. And by proper breaks, I mean, I walk away from the screens and go outside. And luckily I've got a dog that needs walking most lunch hours. So she, she gets me out. The second thing I think is questioning every single meeting and making sure that I have to be in it. And, and I've had really great advice from other leaders at Headspace about prioritizing. I've always been really good at setting boundaries since I became a mum. I, I mean, sometimes I'll start work at 8, 8.30, but most of the time nine. And then I'll always have finished by five because 
Buddy's finished school at 3.30 and there's no one else for him here and there's nowhere for him to go. And then most recently, daily yoga practice. So I've, I did dry January. Astonishingly, I did dry January. And then I was like, Shit, I've got, how am I going to keep this up? So then I started doing fit February. So I've carried on dry January and I've done yoga, an hour, an hour lesson of yoga every morning, six days a week. And that I think has saved my life because I'm, you know, that's a gift of an hour every morning. I'm just giving myself this incredible gift of mental strength and physical strength and calm. And and then now March is about making, you know, healthy decisions because, I mean, let's be real. Every single day last year, I had a massive glass of wine and a bowl of Cheeto Puffs. That was my reward for making it through COVID every day. And I loved it. I loved it so much. It was delicious. But can't do that every day that's crazy so um I think making good decisions and and seeing them as like gifts to myself has really really helped me but I don't there's not I don't get enough I don't get any time for myself I'm either working or parenting there's no no help and there's nowhere for him to go and nowhere for me to go and that's really intense so sometimes I'll hide away and write read a book or at night what you know watch some tv like it's a pretty sad existence at the moment so things like the yoga every morning the daily meditation when I'm at work I mean you know I I really had it down before COVID how I would flip between mum life and work life and social life and exercise and it was all brilliant there was so much to do and so much time and space but yeah COVID my world has just got so so small And then just carving out little moments for myself, for the good of myself and my mental health has been a challenge. That's incredible, though. I mean, even those small pieces that you've been managed, that you've managed to carve out and how you've already, you know, developed the awareness of what might feel good, but maybe not in the long term and maybe not every day. And I also love that you're adding the, you know, like dry January, fit February. I love the framing. It's like, it's not like you're doing them as as punishment, which I feel like, especially for women, we view those sort of things, or we're supposed to view those sort of things as, you know, punishment, because every time we eat a Cheeto puff, we should feel guilty about it, and then like, go for a run around the block. But no, like you're, you're framing that as actually, this is another way that I can treat myself. Yeah, it's funny, you know, with, uh, with the large glass of white wine and a bowl of Cheeto puffs every day, it was a reward at the end of the day, it was a prize for making it through the day but also it was like fuck you I deserve a glass of wine I deserve Cheeto puffs like I just I need anything bad because I it's awful right now you know I mean I can't tell you how astonished I am that I've done dry January and and so I was like I was having a chat with myself like right how are you going to keep it up okay well if you do yoga every morning then you're not going to want to have a glass of wine every night because then you're going to feel a bit rubbish more rubbish in the morning okay so then we have three month three and we're like okay uh, what can I do to feel even more benefit from the uh, okay so if I eat well rather than getting the dominoes or whatever bad decisions again it's like end of the work day oh I'm so tired I'm just going to uber eat some really delicious badness but I'm just recognizing that behavior in myself mm-hmm. and go okay you know what you had a year of it you ate all the bad food and it was all delicious but maybe just maybe ride this wave of giving yourself yeah. good decisions while you can and see how see how it feels and see where it gets you but, you know, I like an idea. I like a concept, right? So this like dry January, 5th February. 
really give the healthy food March? What are we going to do in April? I don't even know. It sounds like habit stacking. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. You're 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 pairing you're pairing something with something you're already doing, and it reinforces the both habits. So yeah, that's a, yeah, which exactly. is like a proven thing. So it's yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I think I think the inclination to just reach for whatever comfort, like thing that you think will bring you comfort is, I mean, yeah, we can just give ourselves grace and let ourselves do that when we want to. But if you want to change, then like you have the power to do that too. So it's it's all a balancing act. There you go. I commend you for parenting during this time. You know, I'm very lucky. He's 11 and a half. And as I said before, we like very similar things. He's a very jolly little kid. His school is doing online classes for six hours a day, which is amazing because he's inspired and entertained and educated for the big chunk of the day. Um, So that's helpful. Do you have also like other parent like resource groups or just like some sort of like semblance of like virtual community where you can at least talk to other parents who are doing the same thing? So I had a bubble throughout the majority of lockdown. So we kind of existed together through that experience. So that was one. Number two, um, Caregivers at Headspace, which is a Slack channel and also a group has been, it's been a phenomenal source of support and has also helped made me feel helpful to other parents because sometimes I'll speak up for the group or whatever. And I can also reach out on the Slack channel and just say, I need you to cheer me up now because I can't do this anymore. I've done that on a number of occasions and the, and the channel's been amazing. And then there's a, um, a really interesting Instagram group called Frollo, which is a, it's like an app for single parents and it's a, they have an Instagram channel. And I, f- I found that massively fascinating, motivating, and, and just a real sense of empathy and, you know, even though I'm just observing it, I feel like, okay, I'm interested in these people's stories. And and I can see how that community is like nearly 20,000 single parents now. I can see how that community is growing and supporting each other. So I would say those, those are the three. You have any role models or anyone that inspires you to show up as your most authentic self at work? Um, I think my, my first boss, so Robert Savile, who founded Mother, he was consistently his very unique self at work and was always very open and caring and generous and very clear that his family was the most important thing to him. There's many, many things that I've completely stolen from him about the way he thinks and the way he acts and the way he often rejects the status quo and talk about, you know, self-belief he could sell anything to anyone, you know, he was, he's, he is just amazing. He's, he's one of my very best friends. And so I think the way that he was himself at work and the way he carried himself, I've borrowed some of that. And then like, I have a weird parallel career path with my mum because she didn't really launch into her career until she was about 50. And it lined up about the same time as I started my career. So I think watching her strive and thrive and grow and you know realize that she had this like ambition and fire and ability in her that none of us not even her maybe knew was in her you know came to life as I was going through my career so I think she definitely inspired me to keep working and trying and pushing all the time like um to be proud of my ambition I think has really helped never been ashamed to want more 
I love that. I love that as like the final like pearl of wisdom uh, for us to end on. Really quick, one thing that we like to do just to wrap up every episode is this like segment called Imposter versus All Star, where we each give basically like a highlight and a low light All Star moment when I really nailed it. The whole project last year, which was you have 14 days from today to on air to step up as headspace and deliver in this moment. Like this is my per it was my perfect scenario, right? Because basically the, the the team was saying, you Caroline, step into the limelight and show us what you're made of. And I was like, all right, you know, it's like my dream. Uh, and with all of the fantastic partners in Headspace, plus our partners at 21CB, plus our partners at GUT, we developed the Headspace promise and we offered free Headspace to the 40 million at the time, unemployed and furloughed people in America and then in other countries as well. And I just feel like to have the opportunity or permission or to be empowered to not just write an ad, but actually to you know, read the situation, highlight those who needed us most, and for the business to go, yes, we will offer free year subscriptions to potentially 40 million people. Like, it makes me really emotional to think about it now, because for, I was very, very impressed and proud and pleased. And we had a lot of questions and a lot of doubters and a lot of naysayers and a lot of people that were very scared and angry with us that we could be, it could be damaging to the business. But we were willing to take the gamble because it was necessary. As much as I was part of a huge team externally and internally, I felt like it's very rare at Headspace that I get the chance to step into the light. You know, often I'm, I'm trying to be behind the scenes and inject a lot of ambition and a lot of creativity across the business and so many things that we do. And I love that as my day job. But this was kind of, you know, a big, big, big moment and a big opportunity, like literally for the world. And I think I, I look back proudly and say that we did something um, extraordinary and, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people really appreciated it. So. That was a good moment. We also delivered it within an incredible time frame. Like all of that, yeah. all of that early COVID stuff where it's like all of a sudden the business is like, we need to do this now. I'm like, put me in the driving seat. I will deliver this because I like these big, scary challenges where people might doubt that we can do it. And that and that's for me like the, the greatest, it's the greatest thing at work is when people go, you can't do that. We'll never do it. We mustn't do that. We shouldn't do that. We've never done that before. I'm like, that is exactly what I want to be doing. I'm such an opportunist and I'm such an optimist. And I always, I believe anything is possible if you've got the right people in the room. I really do. And I've seen it multiple times at Headspace, us pulling things off that we wouldn't, people would imagine that we couldn't. And that's testament to the brilliant people that work at Headspace. And it's testament to the brand that the team has built over the years that people around the world feel, you know, fondly for the brand and therefore will be more open to working together, I guess. Yeah. Taylor, do you want to give your 
Mine are, my imposter and all-star are basically the same thing. Our product manager asked me, like slacked me on the side being like, Hey Taylor, do you want to be part of this really small tiger team to prototype and build um, your own projects with my coworker, Patrick? And I was like, at first I was like, yeah, like that. I'm so flattered that he asked me to be on this team doing this. And then like, my next thought was, do they not trust me to be on one of the teams by myself? <gasps> like, Taylor. I, I was like, do they have to put, do they think they have to put me with Patrick? Because I can't the babysitter. I have to be babysat. Yeah. Because I can't do, I can't deliver on my own on one of the other teams. And I know that's not true, but it just, how dare you? How, how dare, dare you? you? <laughs> Interesting. And did it ever cross your mind that you'd be babysitting Patrick? No, because Patrick does not need babysitting. <laughs> no, I know I I know I bring a lot to the table intellectually. It's the that, symbiotic it's that second that second thought we were like, wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's are amazing. they asking me that because for a different reason? You know. That's amazing. But it's just a thought it's and a you thought. can like thoughts are gonna you can choose it. Observe and choose the observe exactly. what you comes up it. and say. Swipe left, swipe right. <laughs> exactly. Swipe left on that thought. <laughs> Unmatch with that thought. <laughs> I also have a like a two and one uh, imposter all star for this week, which is I had been planning on giving a tech talk on a specific Android library that I really, really like. And originally it was supposed to be, I think, around the beginning of. February, but a lot of priorities shifted. And actually all of the tech talks, the cadence changed from bi-weekly to once a month. And so the whole schedule got shifted. And I asked the eng manager who coordinates it, like, how can I get back on the schedule? When's the next slot? Um, is there anything in like April? And he was like, the next one's July 1st. So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Like, I don't even know if this will be, I was, I was bummed. And then just last week, he came back to me and said, hey, there's a spot next week. Do you want it? And my first inclination. I'm not ready. I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm not ready. I need 10 hours of preparation time. And I'm already working on this other um, project, which is taking so much of my time already. And I don't know. I just need, you know, I need to be available for that. I can't multitask. I don't know what I'm doing. But I, that was my like instant kind of like lizard brain reactive thought, but I like hit the pause button. I do something which I almost never do, but I'm trying to do more, which is didn't respond right away and just set a reminder on the conversation to to be reminded in three hours and just kind of like sit with my uncomfortableness of not responding to someone right away. Cause that's also sort of like an itch. I feel like I have to scratch and I thought and I sat with it and while I sat with it it was the morning so I had like two cups of coffee and miraculously in less than three hours time I would say like an hour later I wrote him back and said like yes I (laughs) got my my like literal slack response was like yes I accept this challenge (laughs) and yeah and I actually I just uh I just wrapped up my my deck this morning and you know, I think I've put maybe like three hours of work into it total and it is what it is. And I've, I've also done a lot of 
prior research, like working with this library. And I think I have some good use cases to offer. And if people ask me questions that I don't know the answer to, like, that's fine. Yeah. Or you can get back to them. You know what? I think, I think that um, often when you have to give talks, the shorter time between saying yes and doing the talk is way better. Mm-hmm. Like having a talk hanging over your head for months is yeah. horrible and you never get to it until the week of or two yeah. weeks before. Whereas totally. I think if it's like, you know, do Caroline tell us this on Wednesday, I would just, I think I would just do it with so much more gusto. And then to your point, Monica, about 10 hours, I need 10 hours or whatever. My new technique is like, if something's buzzing around in my head, like Andrea and I have got a deck to work on, I'm like, I'm never getting it round to it. I keep putting it off or I do 20 minutes hit. I'm not, I'm just going to say right on the next Thursday, that is when I'm going to do it. So then I don't think about it or, you know, and I've never really been that organized before but now I'm like I know I need so much time I'm just going to allot that time far away I know it's coming and I will get it done mm-hmm. but you know I just think sometimes we we let stuff hang around above our heads and it's horrible it's just a horrible thing that you that's not helpful yeah no that's brilliant and I that's actually like exactly what I did I was like you know what I I have other commitments I'm gonna time box this to like three hours on Friday morning and and I did just that and I made headway and then I put a little polish on it this morning and now I'm ready I'm ready for you engineering team (laughs) (laughs) be sure to tune in next week where we debrief how this talk went went for me (laughs) (laughs) um well Caroline thank you so much for for joining us I'm sorry that we're eating into your your Tuesday evening a bit it's It's been lovely to sit in my closet and talk to you (laughs) girls rather than have to make dinner (laughs) yeah it's been so nice hearing from you and just you're I feel like you're you're giving us the the kick that we need to just like stop doubting ourselves and to be our our biggest cheerleaders so Thank you for that. Absolutely. And if you need me to, if you need me to give you the, the, the pitch talk, then, <laughs> you know. thank you for having me, ladies. Thank it was you. Such a treat.